Brian McLaren. I'm a former pastor. I'm an activist, a blogger, an author. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor at Wilden Hills Church in Maplewood, Minnesota. Hello, I'm Brian Zond, pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. I'm also an outspoken ally for LGBTQ people. I'm a straight Christian, and on behalf of the straight Christian church, I want to ask forgiveness from the GLBTQ community. And I want to apologize to the gay community for the treatment that you will often receive at the hands of people who profess to be followers of Jesus. Hi, I'm Bruxy, and I want to apologize to members of the LGBTQ community. Throughout history, and yet to this day, straight Christians have judged you, we've excluded you, we've persecuted you, we've scapegoated you, all because you're different from us. The worst way, the most demonic way that we achieve unity is we pool together our own anxiety and fear and rage and project it upon some nefarious them. It's called scapegoating, and it is demonic. And too often, it has been gay people that have received that kind of hatred. The queer community has, over the years, been so horribly stereotyped by conservative Christians. The Christian church has been, until very recently, a universally hostile environment for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer people. Even to this day, a lot of straight Christians put the blame for social problems on the GLBTQ community. The reasons for this are complicated and sad, but it involves with the same kind of misuse and misinterpretation and misapplication of the Bible that led to the discrimination against women, led to anti-Semitism, but it expressed itself for all of history up until now in homophobia. I want you to know that insofar as straight Christians have acted and continue to act that way, they are acting in complete contradiction to what Jesus stood for. You know, Jesus never sided with the Pharisees and scapegoating certain people groups and judging them. In fact, he rebuked the Pharisees for their self-righteousness. In fact, Jesus sided with the judged. He, he hung out with those who were the most judged in his day. The Apostle Peter says that two words should come to mind when we're talking with someone with whom we disagree, and that's gentleness and respect. Gentleness, how we approach someone, not with condemnation, but with compassion and with a sense of care. Respect turns it up a notch and says, I not only want to be involved in compassionate care and kindness in our dialogue, I want to be in a learning posture. I want to be prepared to honor and respect where you're coming from. I had a dear friend who uh, in our senior year came out to me my religion said that he had made a choice of a lifestyle and all this kind of ridiculous garbage that I was taught. And I look back now and I think my religion made me a worse person toward my gay friend than I would have been otherwise. Jesus taught us that we're supposed to love like the rain falls and the sun shines. The rain never picks and chooses who it's going to get wet, and the sun never picks and chooses who it's going to shine. It just does what it does. So also, Jesus commands us to love without any consideration for a person's sexual orientation or their gender or their social position or their nationality or color of their skin or what have you. I would love to call other fellow conservative Christians to a new embrace of the gentleness and respect that the Bible calls us to. 
that we should learn how to love, honor, and cherish those brothers and sisters in the faith with whom we disagree. And to those who are gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgender, queer in any sense of the word, to those of you, whether you are Christian or not, I want to say I am sorry because the people I am a part of have failed to show you Jesus. We have shouted the gospel as though it was a message of anger and condemnation rather than lived the gospel as something that should transform us first so that we can love the way Jesus loves us. I want to apologize and I want to pledge to seek to listen and to understand and to help gay Christians find a way to fully participate in the life of the church. It's time for us to apologize, to admit how wrong and evil and cruel our behavior has been, to make no excuses except to, just to say we were wrong and we're sorry and we are committed now to leading the way to do better. The judging that straight Christians have done towards the GLBT community was done in God's name. But I want you to know that God is not behind that. God's heart grieves whenever straight Christians have treated you this way. Because God loves you. God loves you with a perfect, everlasting love, just as you are. You're made in the image of God, and Jesus gave his life for you, and you have unsurpassable worth. You couldn't matter more to God than you do this moment. And insofar as straight Christians, we're supposed to be ambassadors of Christ, representing Jesus, insofar as they have not reflected that worth to you, but have instead looked down on you, judged you, have been self-righteous towards you, excluded you. Insofar as they've done that, I ask for your forgiveness. I've seen that video 25 times. <clears throat> the title of tonight's teaching, The Sincere, because I think it's sincere, but misguided apology of Brian McLaren, Greg Boyd, Brian Zahn, and Bruxy Cavey on behalf of the church toward the LGBTQ community. There's a sense in which this seems like a losing venture right, right off the bat. By their very nature, apologies are uh, humble, compassionate, and beautiful things. Everybody loves someone who apologizes. People who apologize are usually right. Uh, apologies are what end fights. Apologies are what create peace. Uh, marriages are saved when people just simply learn to apologize. Friendships are restored when people apologize. Church splits are prevented when people learn to apologize. So, right off the bat, what kind of fool would speak out against an apology? You've seen the video. You look at the faces, sane faces. You listen to the gentle tone of voice. You listen to the soft music in the background. 
who doesn't resonate when we hear the dangers of words like judging, condemning, excluding, and scapegoating. All those terms were used. And those are powerful, ugly verbs. You're on pretty safe ground when you're calling the church away from judging, condemning, excluding, and scapegoating. Those things are bad. Those things are bad. And each of the speakers is right to tell us that these things are wicked or demonic. Greg Boyd uses the word demonic. Brian Zahn used the word demonic. And not to be tolerated in the body of Christ. No argument from me. I agree 100%. I think we should all say right up front that there have been foolish voices, sometimes very visible voices, raised in the church expressing what could only be regarded as hatred and anger toward the LGBTQ community. And, and, and I would tell you that something in me wants to crawl into a hole when I see on TV or hear somebody yelling in a megaphone, you know, God hates queers. I hate stuff like that. I can relate to those voices who question the Christianity behind such obviously wicked behavior. So again, nothing but agreement from me, and I'm sure, I hope and pray, nothing but agreement from this congregation at Cedarview Community Church. That's not our stance. It ought not to be our stance. So there, I think I have stated where I stand on that type of Christianity. And while I don't I don't mind, I don't mind having brothers in Christ maybe help me, maybe help me repent by apologizing for my sins. I'm not sure I'm very comfortable with these four men apologizing for my theology. That seems different to me. That's the problem with this video. And this is another one of those teachings where I've got a really long introduction before I start into the points. Because there is a problem. There's a problem with this video. These four men have developed a theology of welcome to faithfully practicing unrepentant members of the LGBTQ community. Now, to be perfectly fair, Bruxy says he has not yet progressed, that's his word, not yet progressed to the point of totally agreeing with the others in his foursome, but he says he may well be wrong in his present moral stance. These men are good with words. You don't have to watch the video very carefully to pick that up. Most of them are writers, and they know the right words to use to obtain the desired emotion. Something visceral happens when the right words are used. They get the right reaction. And I've kind of chosen to structure this unusual teaching, tracing some of their phrases and sentences back to their roots to see if they have scriptural roots. 
I want to see if, if what seems so gracious and loving and Christian, I want to see if it actually has anchorage in the New Testament. That's where I want to go. So that means this teaching doesn't fit very neatly into the standard outline, three, four, five points. I'll try to do that, but the outline won't be very tight, not very neat. I'm just going to try and pull some of their exhortations urging us to fully embrace and accept the LGBTQ morality into full participation. That's the phrase that was used. I don't know if you caught it. Full participation into the body of Christ. That would be membership, teaching, working, preaching, you know, full participation in the body of Christ. And I want to see if the reasons for this apology that they're giving, I want to see if they fit into what we know to be true of Jesus. If they do, then I have to repent. I don't think they do. And again, before we get going, I I need to point out one more difficulty with responding to everything these four men say in the video, hence the lack of notes. One of the problems is, as I listened over and over again, and I'm writing things down, when, when, when I'm listening to something, I don't keyboard. My brain, I guess I'm old enough, I, I get a pen and a paper, and I, I just scratch and scribble. And I tried to write down, over and over again, some of, the, some of the terms they use, some of the phrases they use, because they're very carefully chosen, and they use a lot of words without actually explaining what they mean by those words. I'm suspicious, I can't prove, that that's intentional. Some words can, can feel like they have more impact when they're just sort of tossed on the emotional fire and left to burn. What, for example, what does Greg Boyd mean when he apologizes for the, quotes, judging? the church has done toward the LGBTQ community. See, if if I'm going to join in with this apology, I need a bit more information. Is judging the same as disagreeing with the LGBTQ community? Am I guilty of judging if I hold the conviction the Bible won't condone the actions of the LGBTQ community. I'm not, I'm not told. I'm just told we shouldn't be judging them. Well, maybe. What, what do you mean? Do you follow me there? What does Greg Boyd mean when he says the church has been, he repeats this several times, self-righteous toward the LGBTQ community? That word just smacks us in the face, self-right. I don't want to be self-righteous. What does he mean? Does he mean that we all consider, we heterosexuals, that we all sort of consider ourselves sinless? Is that what he means? If that's the case, then, boy, we sure do need to apologize. Because we aren't. But I can't remember meeting a single Christian who thinks like that. Not once. Or, 
when he talks about us being self-righteous, does he mean that we think homosexuality is the worst sin anyone can commit? Well, again, if that's true, then we do need to apologize. Seriously apologize. But if he means we're self-righteous merely because we think the Bible condemns same-sex activity, then I think the term self-righteous is incorrectly used. So these hard-to-interpret terms and phrases are used over and over in this video. Bruxy Cavey laments that the church has failed to, quote, show Jesus to the LGBTQ community. Well, I don't want to fail to show Jesus to them. Do you? But once again, I'm left wondering what, what that means. Now, if Bruxy means that we haven't allowed LGBTQ individuals into our churches, then he's right. We ought to apologize. If he means we haven't told the LGBTQ community that they, like the rest of us, need the gospel and can freely be forgiven for their sins, if he means that we haven't shown them Jesus because we haven't told them that, that they need grace just like the rest of us, well then, boy, we sure do need to apologize. Absolutely we need to apologize. But a feeling that's not what Bruxy means. He doesn't say... But I have a feeling that's not what he means. If by showing them Jesus, Bruxy means we should never speak honestly about their sin, then I think he's using the term in a way that Jesus would never want to be shown to anybody. If Bruxy means the church should leave the LGBTQ community to practice their own sexual ethic and expect to be accepted into full participation in the body of Christ then I think that vague phrase, showing them Jesus, is really poorly used. And I think it's intentional. Because we all want to show them Jesus. The question is, what, what kind of Jesus do we want to show them? Perhaps the most dangerous feature of this apology is the way these four leaders who should have, even with a casual reading of their New Testaments known better, the way they constantly impute motives onto those for whom they presume to apologize. The examples abound. Greg Boyd is arrogant enough to tell the church she has excluded them, quote, excluded them, that's the LGBTQ, excluded them because they are different from us. Seriously? Because they're different from us? Look around our church on any given Sunday. Differences abound. Young and old, black and white, rich and poor, single, married, Calvinists and Arminians, saved and unsaved, educated and uneducated, liberals and conservatives, Anglicans and Pentecostals, seeker-sensitive, liturgical. They're all here. The list of differences is just endless. No, we're not afraid of differences. But Greg Boyd knows what he's doing. Because once you eliminate differences as the motive for condemning homosexual activity, you may have to admit other reasons for condemning. Biblical faithfulness, devotion to Jesus, thoughtfulness, 
in studying the scriptures. And Greg Boyd won't have that. It must be, we don't like people that are different from us. And then we hear from Brian Zahn. We hear a different set of motives ascribed to the church. Frankly, I have to admit, in words I still haven't really sorted out, though I've listened to them over and over again, I've honestly tried. I'm not sure what he means when he says we Christians who question the acceptance of homosexual activity into full participation in the church, that we do so because we're scapegoating. Did you hear that phrase that he used? Scapegoating. He says, and I've quoted this as best I can, quote, we have pooled together our anxiety and fear and rage and pro- projected it on some group. It's called scapegoating, and too often it has been on gay people. Now, I'm sure he knows exactly what he meant. I'm not sure I know exactly what he means, but I can pick up this much. It seems the unwillingness on the part of much of the church to condone homosexuality, it's, it's being attributed to some state of, of psychological disorder. Like, we're taking out on others what is actually wrong with our own selves. That's what he says the church is doing. Scapegoating. We got this stuff going on in our heads, right? We need somebody to blame, and so we, he uses the term project. We just project that on the gay community. So what we're showing with our anger to the LGBTQ community, we're showing something that's gone wrong in our own selves. No room here for sane, ordered, compassionate, careful examination of God's word. No desire to reach all peoples of all orientations with the gospel of forgiveness for real sins. No deep prayerful study of God's word resulting in a rejection of homosexual sin? No, not that. Our motives have been assigned to us by those apologizing for us. And at that point, I feel like saying, you know, how about you apologize for your sins and let me apologize for mine? Let me just give you one more example of this imputing of motives. Brian McLaren, I think probably would be the the prominent name in published circles. I believe he's the only speaker of the four to actually call out the church as being homophobic. It's a terrible, loveless word. And I just would plead with the church, this church and anybody who sees this on the internet, I would plead with the church never to resort to this kind of name-calling. The kind she has so often received, don't return in kind. So I went to the dictionary and I looked up the word phobia. Ever done that? Because it's the, it's the suffix that gets stuck onto all these words. Homophobic. Phobia. Quotes. Noun, a persistent, abnormal, irrational fear of a specific thing or situation that compels one to avoid the feared stimulus. An intense, abnormal, illogical fear of a specific thing. Abnormal, illogical. So 
tossing out that term homophobic, it, it, it's a clever move. It's as clever as it is overworked. It, it, it does the very opposite of what they seem to want to do. It, it, it eliminates rather than invites dialogue and thoughtfulness. Because the homophobic person, by definition, is somewhat mentally unstable. A little bit psychotic. And so immediately, here's what's happening. I'm made abnormal because I don't think the same way Brian McLaren thinks. And he wants to come across as the tolerant one. And so, like, is that the best way to to display unity? You hear Brian McLaren, he laments the misinterpretation and the misapplication of Scripture. He says that. Because it's complicated, he said. So he laments the misinterpretation and the misapplication of Scripture by those finding homosexuality condemned in the New Testament texts. He provides no example, none. But, but according to his harsh terminology, he undercuts even the possibility of a proper interpretation of the scriptures by anyone in the homophobic camp. I mean, how could these semi-psychotic people ever be trusted with honest biblical interpretation? So when Brian McLaren calls those who refuse to accept homosexuality, when he calls them homophobic, he's not just saying they're mistaken or inaccurate. No, he's saying people like we are incapable of ever being right because we're abnormal. According to the dictionary meaning of the word, our state of mind can't be trusted to interpret biblical revelation in a tolerant enough fashion to make them happy. I think such a closed-minded, biased, judgmental approach is beneath Brian McLaren. I think he knows better than he speaks when he imputes these motives to conservative Christians. And I would, again, urge the church not to resort to such discrimination and such uncharitable judging. Okay, we're getting close to the first point. So not surprisingly, references to biblical texts are very sparse in this video. Brian McLaren mentions none, though he's the one who complains about the church's abuse of scripture. Brian Zond also mentions none. So Greg Boyd and Bruxy Cavey make very loose references to parts of texts, and they come so close to telling us what those texts are about that it won't occur. Most of the church watching this on the internet, it will not occur to them to doubt that they're getting the whole picture in those texts. Greg Boyd and Bruxy Cavey give very warm, inviting, close but not quite slants on biblical texts. And now it's to those texts that I want to try and uh, turn the rest of our time. Are you okay? Okay. Point number one. And this, I said 18 pages. We're, We're over halfway through. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Point number one. Greg Boyd calls us to remember the occasion when Jesus was, quotes, more comfortable with the judged than with those doing the judging. 
the text he means is Luke chapter 5, 27 to 30. If you have your Bible or something, Luke 5, 27 to 30. After this, he went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Jesus says that. Leaving everything, he arose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? So this, by the way, if you didn't know, this is the go-to passage for those seeking to kind of expose the judgmental heart of the Pharisees and by application the loveless distancing of the church from the LGBTQ community and the people the church considers bad. They're just like those Pharisees, okay? And goodness knows, um, the church can use any help available to reach that crowd of people identified by the Pharisees as sinners. We ought to be reaching them. No argument from me. Greg Boyd stops right there. He says, look at Jesus. He was, he was more comfortable with the judged, publicans and sinners, than he was with those doing the judging, the Pharisees. And he drops it. But maybe this passage says more than Greg Boyd would like, and maybe that's why he just gives it a passing glance instead of a study. Because Jesus isn't quite as comfortably inclusive as many might think in his reply to these legalistic Pharisees. Here's how that passage wraps up. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, that's where Greg Boyd chops it off. And Jesus, this is the next verse. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I'm not ripping that out of context. That's the way Jesus answers the Pharisees. It's right there. So that Jesus wants to eat and mingle with these people works perfectly for Greg Boyd that he rather bluntly calls them sinners who must repent, doesn't. And our Lord's illustration of the sick needing a doctor instead of the healthy, it only deepens the meaning. Please don't, please don't get me wrong. Jesus does love these sinners. Jesus models a perfectly balanced love of both presence, he's with them, and truth, he calls them to repentance. He wants to reach them, and he loves them too much not to tell them they're sinners. Unlike the four presenters in this video, Jesus' love is a deeper love than mere acceptance. I don't know what that means. But it's the verb of choice by all four speakers... The church, we are told, must accept the LGBTQ community. Jesus' love goes much deeper than that. He has something more precious to offer than acceptance. He offers grace. He offers forgiveness. So why 
why this noticeable shift away from Jesus' forgiveness to mere acceptance. I may have missed it, but I don't think I did. I've watched that video over and over. And except in the apology saying, will you forgive us, the concept of forgiveness is never mentioned, not once in this video. Why is this marvelous F word never once used in reference to a loving church? A church called to be like Jesus. Why is it never mentioned? Well, I'll tell you why it's never mentioned, and it never will be. It will always go to not judging, not being self-righteous, accepting, embracing, anything but forgiveness. It will always be like that. Because if we ever started talking about the church offering forgiveness, that would mean these people needed to repent, just like Jesus said those sinners he loved to be with needed to repent. And if we ever hinted that the LGBTQ community need, needed uh, to be called to repentance, these four in the video would say we're judging and we're not accepting the LGBTQ community. That's the way the game works. It's all in the terms. There's something else we need to deal with. Can we ever finally put to bed the endless references to the Pharisees whenever the church is being critiqued? Can we finally move past the overworked idea that the Pharisees were just mean and Jesus wants us to be nice? The Pharisees, let's just nail this down. The Pharisees were devout Jews. They lived under the old covenant of law and added hundreds of other regulations to boot. Jesus critiqued them for that. But even if they hadn't done that, the Pharisees still rejected Jesus, God's Messiah, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The Pharisees rejected Jesus as he stood right in front of them. And because they rejected God's saving work in the promised Messiah, they had they had nothing to offer wrongdoers but law. See, without forgiving grace in Christ, all you have for wrongdoers is law. It's the only tool in the tool belt. This is so important. The Pharisees get badly misrepresented and then always compared to the church. These leaders, they didn't tell Jesus the woman caught in adultery had to be stoned because they were mean. They said she had to be stoned because that's exactly what the law, God's old covenant law, said had to be done. Think about what this means. Think carefully about it. The church doesn't present God's intended opposite to the Pharisees when she merely accepts all people. The Pharisees' condemnation was no solution to these people's deepest needs. And nor is the church's acceptance. That's because both condemnation and mere acceptance grieve the Holy Spirit because both responses leave out the gospel.
calling of the church, contrary to Bruxy Cavey, isn't just to live like Jesus in front of the LGBTQ community. While that's truly important, our calling is to both live like Jesus and tell about sin and redemption through the gospel of Jesus. That's what Jesus clearly meant when he said that he came to call, note the verbal term, call sinners to repentance. Don't talk about living like Jesus in front of people unless, like Jesus, you're calling them to repentance. It's what he did. Two. Bruxy comes with the text, reminds the church, the apostle Peter calls us to respond to those with whom we disagree with gentleness and respect. I'm sure you remember him saying that. The text he tells us is Peter. It's 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I think Bruxy is right, saying that the church ought to respond to anyone in any situation with gentleness and respect. I mean, it just doesn't seem we could go very wrong with that reminder. The real question, though, is, how is Peter using this reminder? I mean, this is the text quoted by Bruxy. How is Peter using this reminder? Well, let's take a quick flyover and we can see, we can figure it out. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? But even if you should, and if I were underlining, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Those are the two words he uses. Having a good conscience, so that, and here I'd underline again, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Clearly, this is a text about a persecuted church. They are, verse 17, suffering for doing good. They are, verse 16, being slandered for their loyalty to Christ. And so at this point, the Apostle Peter reminds them not to respond to their persecutors with anything other than gentleness and respect. That's in verse 15. So, in Peter's words... In the text, the church is not the persecutor. In Peter's words, the church is the persecuted. And the church is to treat her persecutors with gentleness and respect. Bruxy flips it right on its head. But there's something more important here. Let's take the words the way Peter uses them instead of the way the video uses them. Because it begs a really important question that we don't think about as much as we need to think about it, especially in this day. What, what would bring, going through Peter's remarks, 
what would bring this kind of persecution on the church? I mean, what would make our Lord absolutely certain that his church in this world would be hated just as much as he was hated in this world? They killed Jesus. John 15, 18 to 20, if the word, Jesus is the speaker here. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So Peter remembers these words from Jesus. That's why he warns the church about its attitude when unjustly persecuted by the surrounding culture that's going to be drifting further and further away from a scriptural moral base. So what would bring such persecution? How could Jesus and Peter be so certain? What would make such persecution inevitable? I think we should ask that question. Let's unpack that a bit. I mean, some things seem obvious. No one is going to persecute this church for feeding hungry people. Nobody. People, virtually all sane people, they love to see the hungry fed. Christians, atheists, Muslims, Jews, agnostics. That's a good thing. No one is going to persecute this church for clothing the poor and destitute. Virtually all sane people will applaud any group caring for the poor. No one will persecute this church for ministering to Syrian or Nigerian refugees. Virtually all sane people, they admire such desperately needed manifestations of compassion. These are the things that make the church loved, even by godless people. This is what, this is what they think you're here for. Make the world a better place. No one's going to persecute us for that. Nobody. Well, from whence, then, comes persecution? Persecution comes when there's any exposure by the church of a culturally accepted sin. You will be hated. Persecution comes when moral allegiances of two kingdoms collide. Persecution comes when one religion claims exclusive rights to divine grace and redemption. Persecution comes when nice, pleasant, good, moral people are called to repentance. This is the context of Peter's plea for the church. And even in the middle of this inevitable conflict, he says, we need to exhibit gentleness and respect. So, is Bruxy Cavey right? Well, yeah, sort of. Christians are called to manifest gentleness and respect. And yes, that command will serve well in almost any situation at all. But if we're going to refer to Peter like he does, it's a command for the church as the object of persecution, specifically for its commitment to moral righteousness. In other words, it's a command based on increased Countercultural conviction in the church, not less. 
Did everybody understand what I tried to say there? Are you still okay? Do you want to go home and I can finish this another time? Three. Remember, I'm trying to find the text that they refer to. That's what we're doing here. Greg Boyd calls the church to remember God's reign, how it falls on the just and the unjust. And he says this is a call for the church to love both the gay and the straight. Let's look at that. It's in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is a passage about enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Here we go. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's the part, that's the only part that uh, Greg Boyd quotes. Jesus continues. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Greg Boyd's conclusion from this text is, quote, Rain doesn't just pick and choose where it's going to land. It just falls on everyone. Jesus says that's how we're supposed to love. We're supposed to love without distinction, with no consideration of sexual orientation, and he lists other things as well. Now, no one should disagree with Greg Boyd's words in terms of the call to the church to freely offer love and grace to everybody. Fair enough. I'm simply saying that's not what this text is about. This is a text about how Christians treat their enemies. You just love people that love you, Jesus says. You don't score points there. It's your enemies, the people that persecute you. The verses immediately preceding this text are a caution against any kind of retaliation for being mistreated. That's in 38, 39, 40, and 41. And then right after that comes the passage that Greg Boyd quotes. So, that is not to be the Christian response, retaliation to enemies. We're supposed to respond in love and in prayer to the enemies who persecute us. That's verse 44. So this isn't a passage about merely accepting all kinds of different people. It's about the Christian's response to the enemy who persecutes him unjustly. Do I need to say the obvious? The LGBTQs aren't my enemy. They've not been persecuting me, so far as I can tell. I don't hate any of them, though I am convinced that God's word demands I see their homosexuality as sinful. And though they aren't my enemies, the exhortation to pray for them is certainly applicable. But the rest of that passage can't be used the way Greg Boyd wants to use it. Four, and now we really are, last point. Why gospel forgiveness, though including love and acceptance, is so much greater 
and safer than either. I'm arguing here that the love demanded of the body of Christ and the love demonstrated by our Lord isn't best displayed by mere acceptance of anyone and anything. That we are all sinners is true enough, never to be forgotten. And the fact that we are all sinners should remove forever the condemnation of any one particular sin to the exclusion of others. And that very important point, I think, is thoroughly made by each of the four speakers in the video. But while that point is tremendously important, we are all sinners, none of us stands in the judge's chair, I get it. But while that's tremendously important, just saying that isn't enough. What I want to say is this. The fact that we are all sinners doesn't make it safe to continue in any sin. And I fear that's the way it's being used. We're all sinners, so live and let live. We can't just pat each other on the back while we each rebel against the love of Jesus continuing in any particular sin. In other words, I'm trying to get at this so everybody will remember it. The gay person's sexual sin isn't made safe because I'm addicted to pornography. Do you get what I'm saying? It's not made righteous because the church is materialistic. And the way I would see the body of Christ working at its best would be each of us leading each other into fresh areas of repentance. We we should take our lead from the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Any love or acceptance that doesn't further that goal, establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Any love or acceptance that doesn't further that goal in the body of Christ isn't worthy of Jesus Christ, who died for all sinners, gay and straight. And everyone said, 